Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, today we're talking influencers and historically that's meant plenty of cowgirls and cowboys. Fake followers are still a thing, which the platforms don't want to do too much about. Disclosure of commercial arrangements is another contentious area. Consumer law, which is critically important to be across, but entirely unsexy for many in the marketing and communication sector. And of course, there's measurement and metrics. The Australian Influencer Marketing Council launched last September and has just released its best practice code. Something like this, I think, is is long overdue. The Influencer Marketing Council has the backing of the major five communications holding groups. It's got the AANA, the Association, the Australian Association of National Advertisers behind it, and it's got a diverse, even eclectic, we could say, mix of influencer agencies, talent managers and marketers also involved in the initiative. So with us today to help unpack where the hell influencers and brands are at is Patrick Whitnell, Head of Content and Sport at Publicis, Sarah Letts, who is in content partnerships at Totally Awesome and Stephanie Scott, a solicitor at Von Munster Lawyers. We also have John Broom, the CEO of the AANA for a marketer perspective. So welcome to you all and and let's first set the scene, Patrick Whitnell. Um, How big is influencer marketing in Australia and perhaps globally today? What are those top line numbers? Just, Just give us a sense. Yeah, so global influencer spend globally is around 84 billion in 2019. And PwC stated in 2019 that in Australia it was worth about 204 million, though we appear that that may be a little understated, but, but definitely growing. And have you got volume on audiences? How many influencers are out there? What the, tra- what the, what the audience numbers are and engagement? Any of those sorts of numbers, Patrick? There's been a big explosion of influencers uh, over a number of years. So it's hard to get a scale of number of influencers and reach, but certainly they're delivering big audiences that advertisers want to connect with. Okay, so you're the co-chair of this new initiative. It's taken a while to get a code of practice up. Uh, Why is the industry sort of moving now? And what happens, I guess, if, if industry at large doesn't get behind these codes, Patrick? Yeah, look, I think for me, the the catalyst was 2018. You know, Unilever came out during Khan and said that they were cracking down on fraudulent influencer marketing, saying that they weren't going to work with influencers that buy followers. Um, there have been examples in other markets, such as Singapore, where influencers have been called out for utilising stock imagery and, and faking that stock imagery when working with clients. And then also in 2018, um, the Australian Defence Force um, had a bit of a reputation issue when they found that two gaming influencers they, that they worked with um, had um, some controversial past. So 2018 was really kind of setting the scene and, and we came together uh, in September 2019 um, as, a, as a, a body, as you stated, of people, uh, different parts of the category coming together to work on this code of practice. Um, we released it uh, this week, but um, I think we, it would have been a little earlier if it wasn't for for, for COVID. In terms of, so that's the why now, if we have to think about, you know, what happens if we don't follow this, 
I think we're starting to already see in a number of other markets a clampdown of issues around disclosure. The FTC uh, came out, um, I think, February or March this year saying that they would be fining uh, brands and advertisers for uh, fraudulent or uh, non-disclosure. And then just recently I saw in um, the UK in April a rather large influencer called Zoella was uh, with ASOS, the, the uh, shopper uh, e-com channel, um, were uh, warned around not disclosing their partnership when she was doing an ad. So I think it's starting to rise there around the disclosure piece. And I expect to see the ACCC will be will, will have influencers on watch. Great points. I mean, just to be clear, FTC is the Federal Trade Commission in the US, which is obviously uh, looking at this quite heavily. Sarah, Paint the picture a little bit for us on, on what's been happening in the, in the influencer market. We've got micro-influencers. I assume that must mean we've got macro-influencers. But what's happening in terms of uh, what's, what's been happening in the industry in the last 12 months, two years, how you see it? And then we'll get to a little bit more about your thoughts on the code and, and where it's going. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that um, there's, there's a lot of types of influencers to be aware of. And as you say, there's mega uh, mega, macro, micro, and even nano influencers now. Nano, yes. Um, really, there's, there's, there's different ways of looking at it. Mega is, um, as you can imagine, it's around a million or more followers is really the definition. And that's going to give a brand partner um, lots and lots of reach and awareness. And influencers at that level are very professional. This is a business for them. They um, have amazing fan bases and they really have a lot of engagement. A lot of them have their own merchandise and products themselves. There's a lot of development in that area. And those, those influencers really are developing their own IP. So that's, that's a really disruptive thing that's happening in the industry. So you've got your mega, mega guys. Then you've got your macros. They're really around 100,000 to a million Again, they've got incredible reach, but also you're finding with, with macro influencers, they have a real niche audience. So um, the, if you think of mega as really that much, much broader audience, macro, it's more niche. And then you're coming into micros who are between the 10,000 to 100,000 followers. They're often very credible because they're more, they're considered more specialists in their field. You could be having beauty bloggers or, I mean. Do you reckon I could be a micro-influencer? Yes. Yes, you could. I'll get your tips later. <laughs> and nanos are really interesting. Again, um, just because an influencer has less followers does not mean that they're not as engaging. Oftentimes their engagement rates are higher much higher than the macros and the megas because they're really connecting with their audience. There's oftentimes it's local community. They really have a very loyal following and a lot of influence over that smaller number of people that follow them. So depending on, on what, what a, a brand is looking to achieve, you kind of mix and match your influencer um, menu, so to speak. Sarah, yeah, Sarah, where, where, in the last 12 months, two years, where has a lot of the action or activity uh, or attention been from brands and, and, and people like um, Patrick, you know, at agencies? Has it been nano? I've got to get it right. Nano, micro, macro, mega. <laughs> where, where's the action been? From a buying perspective, I guess it comes down to who's the right influencer and who's the right audience for the brief. Um, there has been, originally, as Sarah stated, there was a lot of um, original talent that had big following, but the, there's absolutely been an explosion in, in micro-influencers. Um, so it is about that blend of mix to find what's right for your brief. So it really depends. Sarah, is that what are you saying? I agree with Patrick 100%. It's, it's about finding, I think what we have to get back to is basics here. When you're talking about an influencer, 
a lot of the time this has happened organically. And um, so when you're wanting to align a brand, you want the brand to align with who that influencer is, what their values are and what they love. And then it, it feels genuine. Of course, we need to talk about disclosure. And that's so incredibly important, especially with that under 13s market that, that we focus on. But you don't want to disconnect between a brand and an influencer. So it has to feel like an organic fit, something that they genuinely would love and be interested in. And oftentimes an influencer will only work with a brand if it does feel like a great fit for them. So when you're managing um, who to choose, it's it's very much bespoke, I'd say. We really look at um, what that brand is trying to say, who their audience is, and um, aligning with, with the best influencer to really bring that message to the market. I'm going to get to John and Stephanie very soon, but Patrick, when Sarah starts talking about bespoke, that goes against, in some uh, respects, the scale that media agencies want and need to buy. There's a lot more work in nano, for instance, I assume, than finding at the top line big reach numbers with a mega influencer. So how's that tracking? Is is there a lot more workload in that further down on those smaller influencer regime? It really, uh, for me, it really depends on the platform. Once the platform started restricting organic reach, it really meant that essentially um, you were buying into an influencer and the content that they were creating. This is Facebook you're talking now then? I think a number of platforms probably have a restriction on, on organic reach. So what we tend to find to get that scale is if, as Sarah said, you've chosen the right influencer, you've chosen them based on the content that they can create for your brand, and you tend to then boost or pay to promote those posts through the brand's channel. Um, that's the thing that gives you the reach. So we tend to find that the paid promotion by the brands with that influencer enables you to get the reach that you require. So whether you're a nano or a mega, as, as, uh, as Sarah was saying, it comes down to the investment that you're making in reach. John Broom, marketers have definitely been paying a lot of attention to influencers, flirting with them and even getting uh, going further than that and really starting to build out um, big campaigns and, and interaction. Uh, what are the danger zones? Where are the red light warnings for, for marketers and brands on this front? Because there has been, you know, a lot of good stuff, but also equally some grey areas. Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, and look, marketers uh, do see this channel as an important part of their marketing mix. Um, and, th- and what they want as they as they therefore allocate more dollars to to this is they want a sense of confidence and control around the environment in which their brand uh, you know will be will be featured uh, there's obviously the baseline red red areas that need to be uh, mitigated you know around potential infringement of advertising codes you know or the or the competition act for example Beyond that, uh, they want to be able to invest with a level of confidence and some level of what I'd call predictability around the, the environment from a brand safety perspective. I think what Sarah was saying around organic fit is is, is, is fantastic, but equally, it's got to be a brand safe environment. And I think the codes that we're talking about later, you know, really do start to uh, help that to be delivered. Then I think the other area, of course, then is your marketers love with metrics. We have to prove that the dollars that we're investing are working. So I think, you know, this is another important part which will emerge over time. But understanding of, you know, reach, demographics, et cetera, that actually justifies the expense that uh, goes into this section in the first place. John, can I just ask very quickly, though, and we'll get to the metrics conversation a little bit later, but there's been a lot of rigour applied in other media channels to measurement and verification. 
influences has been somewhat more fuzzy and there's been more acceptance there about maybe not having the rigour or really drilling down into what impact influences have had. Is that changing or is there still just a, a little bit of leeway still going to, to the community, the influencer community? I think there's a lot of leeway going to the, to the community, Paul. I think, I think marketers approach this channel in the 70-20-10 principle in the sense of, you know, you invest 70% of your dollars in an area that you truly understand, 20% in that, you know, you understand some things, but you take more risk. This sits in the 10% bracket. There's not enough really to justify going beyond that 10%. More is needed. Um, and, and that's the opportunity going forward. The only other point I'd raise is, is that Sarah and uh, Patrick have been outlining, there's a huge variation in, in different types of uh, influencers. And I think, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, number of followers, whether it's young or old, whether it's professional or amateur, guidelines that help us introduce a level of trust and confidence around, you know, uh, important aspects like brand safety, disclosure, et cetera, are going to be very useful. Stephanie, now, um, other than me, there's about three other people that'd be really interested in what you're about to say, because it's law and it's boring, but it's really, really important. So just tell us, um, uh, what are the risks here in consumer law around influencer and, and, and for brands, influencers and brands? Uh, we don't have many precedents in Australia for breaches, but there are a growing number of cases emerging in international markets, and, and Patrick talked about a couple of those in, in the UK and the US. Just give us a sense of what impacts could be in Australia for brands and influencers and what's been happening overseas. Certainly. Well, the issue that we have in Australia at the moment is the lack of clear guidelines that bring the legislation and the regulations together in a simple and clear manner that influencers and brands can read and interpret. So that's what the code is hoping to bring to the sector. But as you said, to put my boring lawyer hat on, the legal test that we use when we're looking at things like consumer law, specifically in respect of misleading and deceptive conduct, is whether a reasonable, casual and attentive, but not overly analytical viewer of the content would perceive that there was a commercial relationship between an influencer and a brand. And the reason that that's really important to consider is because of the level of power that the influencer has, for want of a better word, for their influence over the consumer. And so talking to consumer law specifically, there are two key areas I would probably say um, that we're considering. And one is the disclosure um, and transparency obligations. And that leads into misleading and deceptive practice where those aren't followed. But also I've just learned the new term astroturfing. So we talk about organic content and apparently the kids are saying astroturfing because it looks real, but it's fake. And so that's circumstances where you've got either a lack of disclosure and therefore the consumer doesn't know that they're looking at an ad. So they think that this content promoting a coffee scrub is the person's true testimonial, but really they're being paid. And the second component is where there's a testimonial and that testimonial isn't true. So um, you've got someone who's been paid or for some reason they're making a testimonial just for the cash and it's actually misleading because they don't believe what they're saying. What have we seen, Stephanie, overseas in regards to the light spotlight being put on it? We, we started starting to see some cases, right? Certainly. We're seeing cases in the US and in um, the UK. I guess the most memorable would be last year's fire festival where um kendall jenner was 
paid $250,000 to post about the fire festival. She didn't use hashtag ad, hashtag spawn. There was no um, disclosure in respect of her commercial involvement with the fire festival. And the um, interesting thing is that she's never spoken about it and there's not been any recourse. But since then, we've seen more and more cases where people are brought to task. More and more in Australia, we the media is picking up on things. So um, a couple of years ago, Australia Post was targeted because they had used um, influencers uh, like Ashy Bynes, who were promoting services that Australia Post was offering and had been paid but weren't disclosing. So it's something that we're going to see more and more of. And we think with the code, that is going to create some really important and necessary parameters for people to understand what their, what their disclosure requirements are and what they need to do and actually implement that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, they're, they're great points, and, and and I think um, you know it could be cynical me, but uh, the industry does need to do it at least to keep the ACCC off your backs, because otherwise they will come in and do something. So it's you know a bit of proactiveness, not a bad, not a bad effort. Um, I think it's interesting. John and I are probably old enough to remember the only two of us on this panel that are old enough to remember things like um, astroturfing from the 90s and uh, when it was done for for public relations. And you talked really interesting there, Stephanie, about some of that disclosure. And in the old world of analogue media or broadcast media, we had a, a huge stoush uh, 15 years ago in a cash for comment uh, saga, which had John Laws, the, the then king of radio, and, and I think Alan Jones is involved. And it was all about this. And the more things, it's ironic, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So we're seeing this big loop around uh, on some of the same issues. Sarah, the the issue around disclosure uh, that'll be very close to home for you and has it gone too far and has it now got to come back and and where does it settle? I think that audiences actually want the disclosures. Previously it was very grey because it was not seen to be cool to be commercial for an influencer. It looks like they were selling out in many ways and I think there was always that sense of wanting it to be really organic and sort of being a little bit wishy-washy with what they were getting paid, whether they were getting paid, whether they weren't getting paid. I think now that the audiences are so sophisticated and they they want the influencer to be accountable and they actually are happier to see them disclosing and saying, yes, I am getting paid for this and yes, I love this product rather than being indirect about it. So you've got that element for us with our business, we are in um, the under 13s market. So we have to ensure that we're kids safe and transparent with our under 13 audience. That's just um, a big part of our mission statement because we are creating entertaining and branded content, but we have to ensure that we meet those global compliance requirements of COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act and GDPR. Since after all, um, the digital ecosystem and social media platforms are global, they're not local. So um, we have to meet those requirements and we're happy to because um, that, that's what we're doing. And we also employ kids directly. So we are following the guidelines for employing children um, as outlined by the Office of the Children's Guardian, which is really important for us um, to be doing everything correctly and safely. But that uh, does open up that whole issue of influencers when they're actually working with their own children, whether or not they're doing the right thing by how they're employing them. It's a, it's a really interesting space it because is. we get regulated as an employer of children, but the, actually the Office of the Children's Guardian doesn't necessarily regulate influencers 
filming at home. So that is also another really grey area. So lots of stuff. John Broom, um, you've got some thoughts there and, and how does that fit in with the advertising codes, I guess? Yeah, look, I, I was going to say, just building on Sarah's comments there, that AANA, uh, like a lot of other sources, you know, measures community you know, sentiment and trust in advertising. And like a lot of other studies, when you see that broken down by, by channels, there's clearly, you know, a, a trust deficit opportunity, let's call it that, uh, for, for online. So therefore, I think any methods of uh, restoring trust or building trust through disclosure, for example, in, in the way that Sarah says, you know, uh, audiences want to see is only a good thing for that, for that channel and for this, this marketing mix uh, opportunity. Patrick, uh, disclosure, are there parallels here? What is the, why is it that this area has sort of got plenty of slack for the, for the brands, whereas we might have seen 15 years ago all hell broke loose? Look, I, I think I just wanted to build on, on, on the point that was just made around the influencers here because when you talk about the casual comment, a lot of that was put onto the people making that comment and, and why were they doing this and they shouldn't be doing it. And I think what since we've released this code, we've had a massive uptake from the actual influencers themselves. And that's really important for them to, to take this on too because I think it's worth noting that a lot of these people that are influencers are either independents, they're small business owners, you know, they have no experience in marketing or the expectations of what ad uh, advertisers or clients or agencies want. So for them, at least they know now what is important for them to do. So, so at least uh, by them taking this up, they are being, they can state the disclosure, they follow the recommendations. And then of course, um, they're, they're open and honest with their audience. Uh, and therefore, um, the ACCC won't come down on you. I think it's also interesting for some uh, uh, influencers that perhaps uh, are trying to grow an audience. There's great examples where they're actually um, saying that they're being paid to promote this piece when they're not because it feels like they're getting, they're rising as an influencer. So it's it, it can work both ways. That is so, that is the very true. Do you see that, Sarah? I actually do see that a lot. It's really interesting. It's very much a, a stamp of approval. It validates you as an influencer if you are associated with the brand. So it's really an interesting time. But as Patrick was saying, there's been an incredible response by um, influencers online on Instagram responding to the code saying, wow, thank you. Thank you. We are relieved to have some guidelines. They, they, they really, um, it validates what they're doing and that they're, they are small business owners, many influencers, and they're growing that. And it's, it's not just a side hustle for a lot of them. A lot of them really do pursue it. And and having those guidelines really validates their work. So having these guidelines is really helpful and many of them have really embraced it and reached out to to AIMCO, um, being thankful and wanting to get involved. So it, that's really exciting for us, having worked on the code. I was going to say it was interesting that the day before we released our code um, in the States, there was a, a, a group of influencers that had created an, an American influencer council and they launched the day before us because they felt they needed a voice and they needed to understand and set the agenda around disclosure and transparency. So we've actually connected with them since to understand, you know, you know how they've they've started their journey and, and, and I guess the, the connections that we can have in both of our markets. Because importantly, what we know with, um, with a lot of influencers in Australia is that they have large American audiences um, as well. And Australia, has a, a smaller percentage, even if you're based here. So it's important to understand when you're reaching and working with an influencer that you're not only working sometimes with 
um, organic reach in Australia, but you're working with organic reach in other markets as well and some of the rules behind those too. We're going to run out of time really quickly and I've got to get to fake followers, Patrick Whitnell. Now, um, obviously, it's been um, it's been talked about a lot. There's huge numbers. You can you can engineer a big following and historically for companies like you and brands, they've their, their decision-making on what, what influencer or what portfolio they're going to use has been based on what the top-line numbers are. I think you suggested that's no, you're, you're far more sophisticated than that now than just the uh, the top line uh, follower number, but fake followers are still a thing. They're still big, and it does give the representation for a while that some of these some of these individuals are bigger than what they really are. Previously, when people had a number of followers, followers, that's how people would make their selections based on which influences they might go with. But I think the market has matured a little bit more since then. The things that we're saying to people, either at a big agency or, or working directly with an influencer, if, if it's a one-on-one relationship, is yes, of course, look at audience follower volume, of course, but look at impressions, video views, reach, average reach, your demographic, your engagement metrics are very important. But importantly, where is your data coming from? Ideally, um, fake followers is something that um, you ideally want to be looking at trying to understand what is their first party data. So if if you're working with an influencer, you either want to screenshot or access to their first party data that, that hopefully will allow you to say, well, look, if you've got this many influencers, um, but you're only getting this kind of engagement, you then should be calling into question um, that perhaps they're not a, a selection for your campaign in the future because they're not performing. Like like any other channel, if 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 the if the metrics that are important to you aren't delivering, then you just either don't work with that talent or you don't work with that channel again. So I think that yes, fake followers can still be there, but you shouldn't necessarily be choosing your influencers based on just follower volume alone. Pricing, Patrick, how's the price? I'll ask Sarah this as well. How's the pricing uh, been tracking in the last 12 months, two years in terms of influences? Is it, is it love some anecdotes and some details of how much you're paying, Patrick? That'd be great. <laughs> sure. Um, I think for us, it comes down to not always necessarily um, working with the talent, but what they're producing with you um, and the scale of that talent. So you'll look at, I guess, the size of that talent and also what they're producing for you and what you're getting from that. So it might be number of posts, number of videos and so on. For us, for us, what's great about influencers is, and certainly during during COVID, hence why influencers has done so so well as a channel as it continues to do well, is um, is that these are people that have been used to producing content in isolation. So um, for us, we work with them based on not just the size of their audience and the cost there. Um, I obviously won't say what we're paying, but it does range from micro to mega. Mega talent, you know, TV talent are going to charge more, and micro influencers. It might there are examples with uh, technology platforms where you only pay them based on the the content. If the content is good enough, you pick up and, and pay for that content, and you've already set the agenda of what you're willing to pay. So it really has it. it, it, it the, the, the cost works out on the spectrum. There's a brilliant bit of tap dancing there from Patrick Whitmore. Well done for avoiding the question. So, Sarah, I'm going to try you. Just say uh, nano and micro. Give us the range there. What can it range from through to the macro? Where is the, Where has it been going the last couple of years? When you're talking very, very small and nano, it, it could be as small as $50 to $100 a post, all the way up to the hundreds of thousands with with a with a mega influencer for an Australian do we have that do we have those sort of numbers in Australia I'd say yes Patrick have you ever paid more than a hundred thousand dollars for a post you know I, I would agree with Sarah that there is that kind of range ah, he's tap dancing again Sarah so I would I'm- say no but I would say that um, it, it's 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 not for one post we're not talking right. we're not talking Kylie Jenner stuff here campaign, campaign we're talking stuff. about a, a, an overarching campaign and when Patrick's talking about um, a combination it could be post 
posts that could be video content. One exciting thing that we you don't touch upon with influencers is once they've put a post up, for the most part, it sits there in perpetuity. So it continues to gain traction for a client for, for a long, long period of time. Um, and that's really of great value as well that, that we don't talk about. So um, when you're talking about are they expensive, they can be, but they can also be very cost effective as well. So John, I'm sure, uh, you know, we haven't got to measurement yet and, and metrics. And this is something you mentioned earlier in, in our conversation. What are your expectations there? What would you like to see? What is the, what a market is? What should they see uh, in terms of metrics and measurement, which is coming? I think we'll get to it in a minute with Patrick, but what do you want to see? Look, I, I think this is the big opportunity. Uh, I think if 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 this channel really wants to uh, mature and bed itself in as a valid choice for marketers going forward, then sorting out you know some robust metrics um, is is going to be critical, and that means both inputs and outputs. So inputs around you know how many how many people am I reaching? You know what what's the demographic splits and so forth. But if we can then uh, get to some point where we can get an ROI on that investment uh, going forward, and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I know that's ambitious and it's not going to come straight away, but that has to be uh, the ambition uh, uh, going forward. I think once we get those, and I'm very pleased that AIMCO are going to be setting up a, a group, you know, to work on this. And, you know, I'm happy to, you know, um, provide your know, marketers uh, input to it and uh, make sure that, you know, it meets, it meets the ecosystem's needs from the beginning. But this really is a, a great opportunity going forward. So, Patrick, John John talks about ROI even as a metric that they, that marketers want to see. Just very quickly, where is that at? Because you've got another working group coming, but um, explain to me how, uh, like John says, 10% might be experimental, but but how has influencer marketing got travelled so well when the measurement and metrics is as is, 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 is kind of fuzzy as it is at the moment? I think it comes down to growth of audiences. Advertisers will always look to find um, where there is audiences that they can connect with. And um, this influencer category has grown from a, a, a sense of authenticity. And of course, you know, one of the greatest um, channels uh, before influencers was always word of mouth. And, and how could you uh, emphasize that uh, further? And this was a great way of doing it. So I think that advertisers just saw a new growth area for audiences and, and just gone, well, that this is an area that we want to test. Um, I, I would say with John, yes, that there are those that have it in the 10%, but I think some of some other uh, larger uh, advertisers that have been in the influencer market for a long time probably actually have it in the 20% and they're the ones really driving it, such as Unilever, who, who say that they want to make changes globally. So the working group that you've got coming, um, what, what, is it, what, are the, what is the intent there, uh, Patrick, to do? I mean, we have a working group across all of the um, all of the things that we're trying to to to, to focus on um, in terms of transparency regarding the vetting practices, brand safety considerations, disclosure requirements, uh, appropriate briefs and contracts, and then of course the metrics. We're just very aware that there are different ways within the metrics um, on what's reported, how it's reporting. Is it first party data? third-party data or is it public data? We just try to give guidance to say this is what you can do right now, but hopefully the subcommittee will have a, a point uh, or a marker in the sand that, that just says, and working with John, it's a great offer to, to, to work with the, the marketers at the, the AA to just say, what is it that we're all looking for? And let's agree to one metric that allow, or, or the metrics that we can all uh, uh, buy into to make sure that this is a more robust channel than it previously has been. What is the platform's responsibility and uh, role in this? And are they behaving, Patrick? I think we're seeing um, the, that they are um, 
take, starting to work more closely in this space, mainly because of some of the movements in other markets, such as the FTC. We're seeing that, um, say, on Facebook, for example, they have created a in-paid partnership with. So they're st certainly starting to um, uh, think about how they are open and honest. And that, may, may, that has to ensure that the influencer and the brand page need to, need to connect. And then you can either promote from there. So they are working with it in that in-paid uh, partnership perspective. So, yes, it's, it's building. The cynics will say that's also part of their plan to monetize um, more organic uh, content. And, in fact, if you think about it in the political context in the U.S., um, it's, a, it's a way for them to uh, basically, uh, like they did with organic uh, social or organic search there's now paid and let's move let's move the market that way that's another hour conversation sarah the platforms for you how are they uh, how are they behaving for your constituents i think ultimately the platforms say that we're a platform and and ultimately don't take a lot of responsibility they put that responsibility Gee, that sounds familiar <laughs> back on to the influencer um, but there are tools there that make it easier for the influencers to disclose such as talking about what Patrick's saying with Facebook and also with Instagram, you now really, if, if, if a requirement of your contract with a client is to tag them, now it does, it does kind of force your hand to declare that that is branded content. And in many ways, that's a good thing because it, it's kind of a consistency with posting. Um, so, so in that way, it's good that they're providing the tools. And I think that it gives uh, consistency to the influencer with their disclosures but ultimately, it's up to um, the influencer to take responsibility. And that's why this code is, is so key to the growth of influencer marketing. And when I talk to influencers, I say to them, this is only going to help you because it helps make uh, the relationships more robust with the brands and um, allows you to grow your business if, if, if that is, in fact, what they have. And many of them do see it as a business. Patrick, you had a thought? I guess what we've tried to state in this code of practice is what is it that we require from them from a disclosure perspective that's consistent across multiple platforms? What we're aware of is, and, and throughout, throughout obviously different areas, not just influencers, that the, that the platforms have their own guidelines or their own approaches to this category. So what's, what happens on Snapchat might be very different to what happens on Instagram. So look, we would always encourage encourage uh, our advertisers and our agencies um, to work with what is the requirements of the platform, but we, but our guidelines hopefully state this is what we need is consistent disclosure across all the other platforms. I'm going to wrap this up, but before, Stephanie, I'm going to put the last word on you. The next 12 months, what should brands and influencers, what are the big things that they should be really focusing on the next 12 months for this um, uh, in this area of influencers? I think the key thing is that if there's any paid nature or incentive to what they're doing, um, whether that's paid content or whether that's a gifted content, that the influencer owes it to their audience and to their followers to disclose that nature so that everyone understands the nature of it and it benefits everyone. It benefits the brand, it benefits the influencer and it benefits the consumer because they can make an informed decision. They may still think that this person is the coolest and they want to be just like them so they're going to go out and buy the product but it's no different to Britney Spears appearing on a Pepsi ad and someone buying a Pepsi because they think that she's great. Um, there's no need for any um, lack of transparency, really. And I think that going forward in the space, that's exactly what's needed. So the code is a great way um, to consolidate all of that information in a really manageable way and also provide an organisation that people can approach with questions. We're here to help. And 
um, the intention is to improve the sector for everyone. Yeah, good point. Sarah, in 22 seconds, how's, how's influencers gone through COVID? I think they're really thriving. And um, I think that their value has has really been appreciated when when we have had lockdown. So I, I do think that it's just, again, reinforces why we needed this code because they are very valid. They're part of the, the industry and um, I, I don't think they're going away. I always say it's a bit like reality TV. People thought it wasn't going to hang around, but it's here to stay. Let's embrace it and have fun with it as well. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting and I, it's for another conversation. I'm fascinated by some data that's come from Shareably, the social media monitoring platform that talks about social media engagement being down 19% through, through COVID. And it's sort of um, really interesting. I get, I get raised eyebrows all the time and the data is quite interesting. So we may come back and talk to you about that another, uh, another day, Sarah. Patrick Whitnell, where do people go to get the codes? How can they, what should they be doing now? Yeah, they can, um, we, since we did the code, we, we're open and, and welcome any new members or people that want to work with us to move this industry forward. So this isn't, this is just the start of what we're trying to do. So if people are listening and want to get involved, please reach out. Um, they can reach out to um, myself or Sarah or any of the other uh, members, or of course they can reach out to the AMAA um, with Josan Ryan or Heather Craven, and we can perhaps um, leave some details on your website of how they can get involved, or they can go to our to, work, to our website to download the code. That is www.aimco.org.au. Thank you all. Thank you, John, Sarah, Stephanie, Patrick. Uh, really interesting conversation. I've only scratched the surface. I definitely want you back to get into some of more of the murky areas because it's quite fun in there, isn't it? Um, thank you and stay safe. We'll talk again. Thank you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.